there. Doing well, how are you? really hot. I know. It's not so bad in here, though. No, it's great in here. It's okay. lovely in here. Awesome. Is this kind of set up? This is work? perfect, yeah. Okay. Just awesome. take a minute to take the mic set up. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm going to put a sign on the door so anyone walking by just kind of fucks off. That works. Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome Nicole Lalague, a sommelier and the owner of the Pasadena Wine Shop. Born and raised in California, Nicole doesn't have the traditional background one would expect from a wine expert, but that makes her story all the more special. Her first exposure to wine really didn't happen until she was a server at the Cheesecake Factory. From there, she went to Portland and eventually led the wine program at Salty's on the Columbia River. At 25, Nicole took a chance and applied for a job at the Thomas Keller Group, best known for the world-famous The French Laundry, and she got it. Following Thomas Keller, she worked for Wilson Daniels, an importer that represents some of the finest wines in the world, and none of which I can pronounce correctly. But her career was interrupted by a serious car accident that required back surgery and months of recovery. She moved to Pasadena and began to think of her next chapter. In May of this year, Nicole opened her very own store, the Pasadena Wine Shop. What you will find is a curated selection of wines from around the world. And she plays matchmaker, connecting each customer with the perfect bottle. But when you walk in the door, what you really get is Nicole's experience, enthusiasm, and passion. So, without further delay, my conversation with Nicole Alagiel. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, James. Well, thank you for having me at your shop, which is wonderful, and we'll talk a lot about that. So to get us started, can you share a little bit about your background, as I know you're from California, but then you also hold citizenship from France. Yes. So I was born and raised in California. My father is from France and all of his relatives before him. He moved out here in his 20s to go to UC Berkeley, met my mom in San Francisco, never left. And I actually got my citizenship in my early 20s when I was thinking of living in France full time. So it happened a little later in life, but I'm really proud to be a citizen of both definitely proud to be an American. So we're going to talk about this later, but when people think of wine, they have very strong opinions about it. And it's a cornerstone of a lot of people's dinner tables. And in a way, it's an accessible luxury. Growing up in an Italian family, wine was always on the table during big family events. I was raised Catholic, so wine was a part of our religious ceremonies. And I was an altar server, so I dished out the wine, but I probably tasted too much that I wasn't supposed to. But how was wine part of your upbringing? A lot different than yours and a lot different than what someone might imagine. I didn't drink at all until I was 21. I went to church in junior high and high school, no high school parties, no college parties. I knew nothing about wine. My only knowledge of wine was how to ring it up in a computer at the Cheesecake Factory where I was a server. And so I was really late to the game compared to a lot of people I know. So you have a really interesting career that's taken you from some of the best restaurants and winemakers in the world 
to owning your own small business. Who are some of your early mentors that were especially important to you? My journey to wine was a little rocky. I actually barely graduated high school. I didn't go to college. I would sign up for classes and then never show up. So either F's or I's, fail or incomplete. School was never really my thing. So I didn't have any academic mentors. I did have some really great mentors in hospitality and in business in general. A big one for me was a woman named Laura Reeder. She's the general manager of a restaurant in Portland called Salty's on the Columbia. I was a server there in my early 20s, and she's probably the most hospitable person I've ever met. She really taught me what amazing customer service was. She's the type of person who would walk a restaurant guest to a table and say, gosh, isn't this the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen? And she's sincere and she means it. And it's like, it feels magical. So she also gave me my first wine director job. I was a server at this restaurant learning about wine and I took my sommelier exam at 24 and came back and said, Laura, I really want to run the wine program. And so she let me. So Laura Reeder is wonderful. I love her. Also two women who I met in my early 20s named Pam and Joyce. I met them working in the restaurant in Portland. They live in San Diego. Both are wonderful career women in their own right. A few chapters ahead of me in life, but we just got to know each other and they encouraged me to continue learning about wine and continue on. And they both have become people I call for advice, career advice, personal advice. And they are total rock stars and have become really generous with their time and with engaging the next generation to be strong and successful. And Pam and Joyce are just two of my favorite people. They're almost like second moms to me at this point in time. They're wonderful. And then another mentor of mine that's really important is my first mentor in wine, which was my boss, Andrew Adelson. He was the wine director at Bouchon in Beverly Hills. And he hired me when I was just a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed girl from Portland who had read about some of the wines on the wine list but had no idea what they tasted like or anything about them. And so he took me in, and that was my job with the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, and it was definitely biting off way more than I could chew. But over two years working for him, he really helped me learn and grow and become confident and show me how to really guide other people through a wonderful wine experience. Um, He's now the wine director at the French Laundry, so he's doing very well for himself, super proud of him, Um, and working for him for a couple years was a true honor. So you mentioned your experience working for the Thomas Keller Group, which is famous for restaurants like the French Laundry and Bouchon, like you just mentioned. What was that experience like working for such a prestigious group? It was incredible. I applied to be a sommelier at Bouchon in Beverly Hills, and I was sure they wouldn't hire me. Actually, at the time, I had just taken my sommelier exam, and I was living in Portland, and a lot of the wines that they work with I had never actually tasted before or had experience with, and I knew, as young as I was, if I wanted to make a big splash in the industry, I needed to be somewhere where I could have access to these wines. And so, at the time, I had a connection through Pam and Joyce to potentially go to Copenhagen and work for a chef that used to be at Noma, and so my thought was, okay, this chef in Copenhagen He used to work at Per Se. Maybe I could go work for him and then be a dishwasher for Thomas Keller at Per Se or the French Laundry or something. And I saw they were hiring a sommelier in Bouchon in Beverly Hills. So I applied knowing they wouldn't hire me, but they did. So it was this wonderful trip where I ended up moving down for the job. Working for Thomas Keller was really life-changing. Not only the exposure to great wines, 
but also the caliber execution that you're at. I mean, you're working alongside chefs and servers that are at the very top of their game. And I think it's really hard to go from that environment to anything else because just being a part of such a focused machine is incredible. And it's not like experience that you add on, like putting a cone on when it's cold out. It really transforms the way you do everything. And so many lessons I learned there I think about today with what I do with the shop. I mean, one of those lessons is if you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? That was something we talked about at the group all the time. And so I think about that when it comes to executing the store and making sure somebody has every ounce of my energy when they're here. A lot of those lessons I still think about. And then I also describe those times as for a sommelier, it's like being a rock star on tour. It's not sustainable forever. Most people can't work on the floor as a psalm for 20 years, but it's the stories you talk about forever. Like we managed beverage for the Vanity Fair Oscars party, which was super cool. It was the biggest event on the West Coast every year. So every celebrity you can imagine is waiting at the bar for you to mix them a drink. And the energy in that kind of crowd is unbelievable, let alone the individual dinners you create for people you've heard about or watched their movies. Like it's just, it was an incredible experience that I will always look back on with just awe. And how old were you? I started there when I was 25. And that definitely was a learning curve because most people I talked to were twice my age. And I was supposed to recommend wine to them. So it really made me learn humility and learn to take that difference as an advantage where somebody would tell me something about wine that I didn't know. And instead of getting defensive, I would be really glad they shared that with me. So I would just come at things from an eager perspective and show respect to people that obviously were much more versed. And I learned a lot more that way. And I think that attitude I still take with me to the shop where there's a bunch of stuff I don't know. I'm always learning new things. And I love when someone can point that out. And I think that spirit is here in the shop too. Well, from Thomas Keller, you went to managing local sales and distribution for Wilson Daniels, which is an importer known for representing some of the best wines in the world. And I'm not going to try to pronounce them, but I'll let you try to pronounce them because I'm not going to try to butcher some French wine names. (laughs) But what did working for these wineries teach you about selling wine? So Wilson Daniels is an importer that imports some of the best wineries, the most famous of which is Domaine de la Romani Conti which is shortened as DRC, and they make some of the most rare and expensive wine in the world, as well as Domaine Lefleve, also from Burgundy, and then Biondi Santi and Dal Forno Romano from, from Italy. It was really a huge privilege to work with wine at that level. And the term like sales is not really the right word to describe that kind of management because they're wines that everyone wants, but there's only so much of, and you're really like a protector of these wines. You want to make sure that they're going to the right restaurants and retailers that will showcase them well and do well by the brands. You're really the a winery's advocate, making sure you're doing what's right by them. So there's a huge amount of loyalty and relationship building that goes into taking care of these wines and making sure that they are in the right places, in the right hands, because that's exactly what the wineries want, and it's what you want too. But yeah, I would be calling on the Spagos of the world and the 71 Aboves of the world and Republique and Moza and the really, really high-end, amazing restaurants. So I got to work with great, knowledgeable wine people selling some incredible wines, but I would say that one-on-one relationship with a winery was new for me in my career. I was used to working with hundreds on a list, but I had never visited a property that, oh, I'm in charge of sharing this story. What I'm seeing here today, 
what I'm tasting here today. I'm the only person in Southern California that can bring this to a restaurant and bring this to a retailer. And it's a huge responsibility and it's a total honor because there's generations of people that have helped create this one wine in a certain way. And I get the really fun job of sharing that story and transferring that enthusiasm and excitement. And so it was a really cool intimacy that I got to experience working with these wineries firsthand. Well, let's transition to talking about passing to wine shop. In 2019, you were involved in a car accident that changed your life. You went from managing wine accounts to having to focus on your health. And while recovering from your second back surgery, you thought of opening your own wine store. So where did the idea for opening the Passing to Wine Shop come from? You touched on it in 2019. I was injured in a car accident. And it was the first time in my life that I was hurt and I didn't feel better shortly after. So I was trying to work, trying to get back to normal, and I just couldn't get back. The job I had with Wilson Daniels, I was driving all around Southern California, sometimes a thousand miles a week. And it could be really, really tough on my back. But I loved my job, so I was constantly weighing how much could I do because I loved what I did against how much pain would it cause because I just can't handle so much. So I really tried to stick in and stay strong, but I just knew that something had to give. I knew that I couldn't do both anymore. And after my second back surgery, I had recovered for three months, which was really boring. I'm sure a lot of people during COVID know what it's like to just be out of Netflix shows to watch and be ready to leave your house. It's very relatable, I think, right now. So I was just ready to do something after my surgery recovery. And so I tried going back to work and I physically felt great when I was recovering, but I professionally was really unfulfilled, really bored, really stir crazy. And then I went back to work and I felt the professional part of me come alive. I was so excited to be back with people talking about wine, really like being in charge of my day again and being a part of society again. But within a couple of days, my back hurt so much. And I just knew I can't do either one of these. I can't lay in bed all day and do nothing because it's so boring. And, but I also can't get in a car and drive and sit. And so I started brainstorming. What could I do? I reached out to wine retailers I knew about, oh, could I do something online for them? Could I do admin for a wine distributor? I thought of everything I could that would potentially exist, but there weren't any doors opening. And with COVID having hit, there were some commercial real estate spaces open. And I remember in the back of my head thinking, oh, well, maybe I could open a wine shop because I could lay down when people weren't there, which feels good on my back. And then when people are there, I could get up and walk around and help them, which also feels good. But I just decided, well, I could never afford a space. I never even let myself browse. And so for months, it was just in the like very back corner of my mind. And then at night, I was like, okay, let's just look. So I looked and I realized, oh man, maybe I really could you know, afford something. And once I realized it was an option, it just quickly became what I needed to do because I knew I was too young to not work again. And also being a woman who wants kids one day, I know that's gonna be another hurdle professionally. And so I just really figured if I'm gonna do something like this, and not have a huge gap in my employment, like this is the chance to do it. And so even though I'm not a, I really am not a big risk taker, I got to a point where I realized I would regret if I didn't do it. So I pulled the trigger, signed a lease, had no idea what I had gotten myself into. And looking back, I'm so glad that I did. It's been a really crazy journey, but it's 
been wonderful and I'm finally working again and doing something I love, which feels great. So how has the shop complemented your recovery? You mentioned that you can kind of rest during downtimes, but then you'd be on your feet again. So how has the shop helped? Yeah. So exactly what you said, it's allowed me to take care of myself physically by laying down, working on our website, working on our social media when people aren't here, but it's allowed me this even cooler thing that I didn't realize I was missing, it's allowed me to connect to the community because in my last job, I was all around the city and I moved to Pasadena a couple years ago during the pandemic. I hadn't really met many people. And because of Pasadena Wine Shop, I feel so connected to my neighbors. I meet people that live a few doors down from me, you know, every week. There are people I'd seen walking and never talked to, but they walked into the shop and now I see them on my daily walks with my dog. I have like a new built-in group of friends and it's been so awesome, especially after COVID and especially after my surgery, just being stuck at home without that social outlet. I love getting to see people I know all the time. It's selfishly so much fun. I get such a kick out of being a part of our city in a way that I never thought I would be. So that's really complimented me just as a person to have that connection. And then I am feeling better physically as time's going on, being able to take care of my health. So it's really helped in a lot of different ways. It seems like buying wine has changed over the years. When I was a kid, you go to a a liquor store and you buy wine there, or you go to the grocery store. But now there are big box superstores. And I'm thinking about that BevMo used to be an old staple store and Total Wine is in the old Office Max near Vroman's. How did you want Pasadena Wine Shop to be different? Ooh, good question. I wanted Pasadena Wine Shop to not be intimidating. That was the first thing I thought of, as I just wanted it to be somewhere where anyone who wants wine feels comfortable and cozy and welcome and warmly invited. And I think while big box stores have so many choices, I think those choices are overwhelming. I personally get overwhelmed in stores like that. If I walk into a Total Wine, I can tell you that I don't know half the things on the shelves. I don't know what they taste like. I can pull out my phone and read what a critic has scored a wine to be or what the winemaker says it tastes like, but I don't know them personally. You know, it really, even for me, is a guess and check method where, okay, there's 20 Chardonnays in my price point from the same exact place. How do I know which one to get? And there's no one there that can help you. So I think places like that, while they have a killer selection, it can become more intimidating to buy a bottle of wine, not less intimidating. So for me with the shop, we're small, we're curated, and half of our wines are under $30 to begin with. So this is a place where I want everyone to be able to find something they like and try something new in a comfortable price point. And I think the way the shop is laid out with so many affordable wines hopefully captures that. But the next part in breaking the intimidation factor is we provide one-on-one customer service to everyone who walks in here. And we ask, what sounds good? What kind of wine sounds good today? And somebody will say, oh, I would love a white wine. I'm like, great. And then I just kind of play Sherlock Holmes. I kind of paint a picture. And whether you're a wine person or not, I think most people can kind of grab onto something. Like if you're a music lover and I say, okay, what kind of music do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to something that's like funky and upbeat? And like, I'm describing Michael Jackson. You maybe have never heard Michael Jackson, but if I say like funky fun, you can kind of groove to it. That paints a picture in your mind, right? Or if I say, do you want to listen to something more like mellow and somber and more contemplative? And I'm talking about Damien Rice. You maybe never listened to Damien Rice, but you have a picture, right? I do that same thing with wine. If you want white, do you want something that's really crisp and fresh and light? Or do you want something that's more rich and aromatic and mouth filling and juicy? So I try to paint pictures and let people pick what 
picture sounds good. And then I paint another picture and another picture until we just dwindle down to a bottle. And I also ask, what do you want to pay? There's no wrong answer. We have a bunch of great wines for 10 bucks. And I think asking that question allows people to feel comfortable saying, you know, I'd love to spend 15. Because if I say 10 and you say 15, you're a high roller, right? So there's a lot of little things we do that we do to intentionally make people feel more comfortable. Because if you feel comfortable, you'll want to come back. And I don't care how much you spend or how many bottles you buy. I just want you to come back. I just want you to like being here because I like being here. And the more people that like being here, I get to be here more. So that's really how we think of it. It's as simple as that. So since you've opened the shop, what's been the reaction from Pasadena to your selections and to the kind of the service you provide? What's been kind of the experience? It's been a really positive reaction. I've been surprised. We're still really tucked away here on Green Street. We're not spreading the word in any other way other than just existing and letting people tell people they know. So it's a small growth, but I would say like every week there are more and more people coming back. We had our best day ever last week and I knew almost everyone who came in. And so it was just so exciting that people want to be back and, and want to keep coming. I think what's been really surprising is how diverse the wine interests are. I had no idea what to expect when I opened the shop. So I had a little bit of everything from everywhere. But what's been so surprising is I have 20 people come in and each person can tell me what they'd like and I won't sell the same bottle of wine twice. There's really that much variety here, but that much variety and wine drinkers and a lot of people I've been so impressed like they kind of know what they like or know what they're looking for and when I paint one of those pictures are really quick to be like oh that would be that that sounds like what I'd like so I've been really impressed with the diversity and also the like confidence in people saying like oh yeah no I'm kind of looking for something like this I'm like I know exactly what you're saying so it's been really fun it feels like most people that come here are innately curious which I think is always really helpful because like I said earlier there's so many things to discover and new things to try and I think a little bit of curiosity in a shop like this goes a really long way well you offer about 400 types of wine in a space that's just 600 square feet. So it's a pretty small shop. It makes it really intimate and really comfortable. Like you said, you wanted uh, most of the wine that you have are reds, about half, with white, sparkling, and rosé making up the remainder. What are your most popular wines? Ooh, I would say right now, the summer, Italian whites have been the go-to category. I love Italian whites because there is so much quality in that like 15 to $30 price point. It just doesn't get better than Italy. It just doesn't. And so people wanting any sort of crisp, fresh Italian white, I've got 10 things to point out that you could love. And that's an area in the shop that I think I'll always have a little too much of, because once again, I just think it does not get better than a Fiano or a Greco Bianco or some of these like fresh zippy whites from Italy. Just wonderful. We're both from California and our state is really well known for its wines. You feature wines from around the world, but most of the wines you sell are from France and California. What's so special about the wines made here? The wines in California are so unique. They definitely have their own personality that's been forged through fire over the last, you know, 50 years. There's like a warmth and sunniness to wines from California. Some of that obviously is the climate. A lot of wines here get a ton of sunshine, a lot more than their counterparts in France. But it's remarkable how specific different appellations have their own personalities. Like if you're looking at Santa Barbara County and you're looking at Pinot Noir, you've got Pinot Noir from Santa Maria Valley that has great structure and a little more earthy and brooding. And then you have Pinot Noir from Santa Rita Hills that's like darker and lush and has this like cola spice to it that's super interesting. There are all of these little nuanced places in California that have 
their own really strong, distinct personality. And some of these places are only five miles apart. And something I recommend people to do that I think is really fun is when looking at a couple of these areas, like those two, for example, Santa Maria Valley and Santa Rita Hills, if you pop open a bottle of Pinot from each one, you can taste the difference. You don't need to be a wine professional. I, I like I liken it to ordering a cheese plate at Agnes or a cheese plate at any great restaurant. If you're at home and you take out a piece of craft Singles, like what does it taste like? Oh, it tastes like cheese. If you have any cheese on its own, it tastes like cheese, just like wine tastes, well, like wine. But if you go and have a cheese plate and you have goat cheese next to sheep's milk, next to Gouda, you're like, oh man, this goat cheese is really tangy and fresh and light. And then this Gouda is a little more textured and rich and nutty. Wine is the same thing. So I always recommend if people can to open two bottles of things that are somewhat similar and taste their differences. And in California, especially, there's so many great examples of typicity, regions having their own identity and only being around for some of them 30 years and having such a strong voice, I think is really cool and really unique how far California has come in, in such a short amount of time. Well, when we first started talking about coming on the podcast, you shared with me that the quote unquote heartbeat of the Pasadena wine shop is not about the wine you sell, but about the conversations you have with customers. By talking with people, you act as a matchmaker. And you get to know what people's tastes are and their preferences. So as someone that doesn't really drink wine all that much, this sounds like magic to me. And, it, and magic in the best possible way. So I thought it'd be fun to see if we can go through the process yeah. to pick a, a bottle that's right for me. I love it. So how, what's the first step of this, this process? The first question I would honestly ask is, does wine sound good? Very good question. So yes. Okay. Wine sounds good. Cause yes. I ask that cause sometimes people say, yeah, you know, it sounds okay. And then I'll tell them about the non-alcoholic cider that you and I are having right now, which is so tasty and completely alcohol free. We've got non-wine options that are great. So the fact that you said yes, I would then say, okay, great. Is there a certain type of wine that sounds good? Or if you're not sure, do you remember the last wine that you had that you thought was really tasty? Also a good question. I think I'd probably gravitate more toward white wine. Okay. Something that's a little bit lighter. And I don't know why that is, but I think this preferences would be something that's lighter, not as heavy. Yeah. And something that's not as rich. Something that's more like crisp and refreshing. Right. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Do you have a preference on if it's from here in the U.S. or if it's from another country? I do not. Okay. No preference. So crisp and fresh. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Sauvignon Blanc. That's a really popular, great piece. Is that something you'd be interested in or do you want me to show you something kind of off the beaten path? Yeah. Interested in something that's a little bit different. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think of wines as some wines being universal, like, oh, they're just really easy to like. They're not really niche or really complex or they're just easy wines. And so I'd probably go for something that's a, well, most people just like it because it's just simple, easy, fresh, delicious. So I'd probably go for something like that for you. If you wanted something a little different, we have a Greco Bianco that I absolutely love from Italy. I think I mentioned it earlier. It's under 20 bucks. And the word that comes to mind when I drink it is like zesty. It tastes like citrusy, zesty. If you're having food that does well with a fresh squeeze of lemon, that's a kind of wine that would go great with what you're eating. Or if you're someone who likes lemon in your water or lemonade, like that kind of tang that makes your mouth water, this wine does that same thing. And so it's got that like mouthwatering tartness. If you want something that's light and fresh, but a little bit more smooth and less puckering and more like juicy, we have a Pinot Gris from Oregon that I love. It's called OPP. It stands for Other People's Pinot. It's made by Andre Mack, who's a master sommelier. It's also black owned winery and that's 20 bucks. And the word that comes to mind with this wine is it tastes like pear. 
It's like soft, a little fruity, really easy drinking. And there's something about Oregon Pinot Gris that I just think everyone likes. I think it's really hard to not like Oregon Pinot Gris. And that's going to be light embodied, but a little bit less harsh, a little more like sea glass than like the jagged acidity that might come from the Greco Bianco that I would say is more like a fresh squeeze of lemon. Did one of those sound a little better than the other? Yeah, I think the the OPP one sounded kind of interesting. Yeah. So I do that kind of thing where I paint. I try to make even like drastic differences a little bit, even if it sounds funny, because it just helps somebody gravitate towards one or the other. And so I just try to exaggerate differences to help people choose. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. Okay, great. So we're sitting in your shop and am I on the white side and you're on the red side or how does this? You are currently looking at our imported wine. Okay. So of these five shelves, the first one is kind of a highlight reel and then shelves two and three are white wines and four and five are red wines. Got it. Okay. And they're all imported and they're, they're these are all European wines and they're kind of north to south. So it goes Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Greece, sometimes Macedonia. I mean, it gets real, real out there, but kind of north to south is how it's organized. So I'm on the, I'm on the native side. Yeah. Now you're playing for home team. Okay. Where you're looking now is all of our domestic wines and our wines from the Southern hemisphere. So wine is kind of divvied into two categories, old world, which is Europe where wine originated from. And then they say new world, which is kind of everywhere, but Europe. So I could say that old world or new world, but I think those words are intimidating. So I just say Europe and everywhere else. Or if I'm talking to someone who's a wino, I say old world and new world. But now you know some of the wine terminology. I love the artwork on the, on the wine. They make wine so interesting is that there's art and obviously the making of the wine, but it's also the presentation of the bottle and the artwork on the label, all these different really cool elements of wine that make it kind of Oh, special. totally. Yeah, I used to work for a winery that had a label change, and we all said that the new label tasted so good. There's something about a label that can really help. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited that the podcasting tool I've used since the early days of the show, Zencaster, is a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD video recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most about Zencaster is that I record separate audio and video tracks, so the editing process is much more customized. Plus, there's secured cloud backups so you never lose your interviews, post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. My guest just click on a link and we start recording. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code the Crown City Pod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You will also get a 14-day free trial. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show. So you've recently shared that you focus on family-owned small producers and try to match customers with wine that they can't find any other place else. So 
How do you find these small winemakers? As a wine buyer, they come to you a lot of the times, which is really nice. So wine distributors will come to the shop and show me some of the wines in their portfolio. Here in the shop, a lot of the wineries I've worked with before, either at Bouchon or at my restaurant in Portland, some of them I've sold before. I've worked for the distribution companies and I'd say about half of the wines in here I have had before opening the shop. I know them, their reputation. I kind of knew before opening I'd want to carry something from them. And then the other half are things I had never had until they were brought to my attention. And those are people coming in and sharing the stories like I used to share back in the day. And I think that's part of what's so fun is there's always something new to discover. I'm constantly learning about new producers, whether it's from my customers coming in and saying, hey, I went to this place in Paso. It was awesome. Have you heard of it? I'm like, never heard of it. There's always more to discover. But we're lucky here in L.A. We have so many producers from around the world that want to be in LA because it's a major wine city that we have access to a lot of different things to choose from. Wines from all over the world and then a lot of wineries from all up and down the coast. So what new wines do you want to maybe add to the shop? Ooh, I have a lot of domestic and French wines, but I really want to add some more wines from Greece. I love wines from Greece. We have a small handful between five and 10 that are super high quality, really, really specific and beautiful. And the wines are really unique. Similar to Italy, there's a lot of varieties that grow in Greece that don't grow anywhere else. And the wines have so much character and so much history behind them. I mean, some of Greece's place in the wine world has to do with their place on the global stage. They haven't had the easiest road the last hundred years as far as their own economy. And so we haven't seen Greece have such a mainstay here in the wine world, but the wines are awesome. The wines are incredible. And a lot of the times they can be really affordable too. So I'd love to get some more wines from Greece. I also think a huge area of opportunity in the shop right now is Southern Hemisphere. I could use a lot more from South America. I really look forward to growing South America as well as South Africa and Australia. There are so many great wines in the Southern Hemisphere. And I think when you're building a shop, the first places you think of are the US, France, Italy, Spain, Germany. And then now that those are kind of covered, I'm really excited to get to what we call the new world, which are the younger wine countries that most of which are in the Southern hemisphere besides us. And there's just a ton of really cool things to choose from there. So that's, those are the next areas I'm excited to explore. Well, we talked about this before we started recording that I'm in commercial real estate. And when I walk down the street, every block has a story. Every building has a story. I mean, your space right here, I always knew as the golf shop, even though I never went in it, but I knew there's a, there's a golf uh, store that was here before. And with wine, I think that probably you can look at every bottle in the shop and tell a story about that particular wine. Is that what kind of makes wine so unique? Totally. Yes. And similarly to your analogy, every bottle is different and two wines that are made right next to each other can taste totally different. It really depends on who's there, what their mission is and what their story is. And I think also similarly, there's no one right wine for everyone. Just like when you're showing buildings to potential customers, there's no one building that, hey, a dental office and a real estate firm and a law firm are all going to love this space. No, those are probably all different spaces. Just like my customer coming in wanting a 
bubbles for a bachelorette party and someone wanting a serious red to go with lamb shank. I mean, those are totally different people and the wines that would answer to them are totally different too. So yeah, there's so much variety and just like in your world, there's not a one size fits all. Well, one aspect of your shop that I really admire is that you carry and promote wines from women owned and black owned wineries. If I look over to my left, but to your right, there you go. You have a shelf that's for black owned wineries and a shelf for uh, female wineries. Why is it important to sell wines from these type of winemakers? Well, first off, these wines would be here no matter whether or not the sections exist. A lot of the wines in both of those sections I've drunk or served or worked with on some level, they're just killer wines. And they happen to be black owned wineries or they happen to have female winemakers. And it's awesome and really great to highlight that. But they're also just really, really tasty wines in their own right. So we have a section highlighting female winemakers and a section highlighting black owned wineries. And then those wines are also just throughout the store. So whether you're intentionally looking for them or not, they just have a great space here in the shop. I think also we have a long way in the wine industry in promoting stories that are different than the cookie cutter white guy in a vineyard. I think we all in the wine industry, no matter our gender or color, have a responsibility to share diversity, celebrate diversity more, encourage it more. I think we're seeing that a lot with women coming to the center stage in wine. I think we have a long way to go with racial diversity and celebrating that more and really helping hone that next generation of people from all different walks of life and all different starting points. And I would love to be a place that celebrates those differences. One of the fun things about doing these episodes is that I get to do research on my guests and their industries. So I got to do a deep dive on the wine industry. And I didn't know this, but that the wine industry is dominated by three big companies, which apparently account for 57% of domestic produced wine sales by volume. And even though we've seen an explosion of producers, you know, there seems like there's a lot of consolidation. You know, what's the state of winemaking today? Because I was doing some research before I came over, and I know that the Gallo is the largest producer. And I was looking at, like, their brands, and they have, like, 90 different brands. So you're, you think that you're buying, you know, a, a small producer and a small winemaker, and you realize you're, you're buying General Electric or you're buying a conglomerate or something like that. So kind of where are things with winemaking today? That is such a good question, and it's really hard to give a simple answer because, yes, there are big players in the wine industry, and those big players are responsible for some really positive changes. There are some that have really spearheaded sustainability and organic farming practices and sustainable wages, and then there are downsides where a lot of smaller players can't compete, whether that's local growers that can't afford to operate, so they sell, and these large companies buy even more vineyard land. We're seeing that a lot in California and around the world. So there's positives and negatives, and it's really hard to drill down in one aspect without really highlighting the other. So it's a complicated topic for sure. I would say it is, I think, a privilege of the sommelier to share the story of the small winery. We do focus on a lot of family-owned producers here, and I think champing the little guy is what wine shops are really well known for. When you go to the grocery store and when you go to BevMo, when you go to Total Wine, when you go to some of these larger stores, you're naturally going to be buying larger production wines. And some of that is because I don't know how many locations Albertsons, Vons, Pavilions, Ralph's has, but they have thousands. Let's just pretend that's right. I have no idea. But in order for a wine to even make their radar, 
they have to be a huge production because they have so many stores to fulfill. They're not going to deal with 100 cases to spread between 1,000 stores. And so naturally, you're going to find much larger production wines there. And I think of large production wines as being like a huge choir of singers and some of these smaller vineyards to be like a, a soloist where there's just a distinct voice. And sometimes I think those voices are really, really great. But you're naturally going to find some of these smaller wineries at places like Pasadena Wine Shop or other small wine shops in the area. And what we love about these smaller production wineries is the quality is really high. I don't know if you've ever tried to bake a double batch of cookies or a 10 time batch of cookies, but they don't really turn out the same way a lot of the times. I find that to be true in wine often. There's something about a smaller area or smaller production that the flavors are just more concentrated, more bright, more lively. It's not true all the time, but I think that's a really big highlight of shopping small. Well, you've described the life of being a psalm. Can I say psalm? Is that yeah, psalm is great. Yes. Okay. Now I sound sophisticated. So you've described the life of being a psalm as fast and furious. But to really know wine, you have to know about so many different things. So you have to know about agriculture, geology, history, geography, meteorology, because there's so many variables. Do you think that this is what makes knowing about wine so challenging? Yes. Yes, I think that's part of it. It's funny. I had someone in here last week from another country who was looking for some wine to bring back to his parents. And I was explaining Santa Barbara. He was surprised that was a wine region. And I ended up pulling up a map and showing this person, well, if you look at Santa Barbara, there's a transverse mountain range, which acts as a wind funnel and pulls cool air from the ocean. And I look at him, I'm like, is this making sense? And the guy tells me, I'm actually getting my doctorate in atmospheric pressure from Caltech or something very similar. And then my next question was, was what I said right? And I laughed. He said, yeah, yeah, it's right. So it's never been more evident than now how many nuances of science (laughs) exist in wine and how little I know comparatively. I do think that's part of what's so challenging about wine is there's a lot of complexity and there's only so much that someone like myself can know. I know nothing about what it's like to be a wine grower. I know nothing about being the person to make wine, I can tell you about those things academically. But yeah, I think it's hard to wrap your arms around this kind of thing. And that's why it takes all these different little people like me who can kind of cover one aspect because there's so many other things to focus on. I think the most challenging part of being a Psalm and especially me at this wine shop is there are so many great wines to choose from. And our shop is small. You're, you're in here. We're 600 square feet. We have 400 wines on the shelves. There's not much more room. And tomorrow I could have 200 producers bring me great wines at great prices, but there's just not enough space. I think the hardest part about being a wine buyer is there really is such great quality out there and there's only so many spaces. It's a really competitive industry because it's awesome and it's fun and people love wine. So people love making wine. But I would say the hardest thing is having to turn down great bottles simply because there's so many to choose from. It's really tough. So in addition to running the shop, you also create custom orders for events and like weddings and things like that. From the outside, this seems like a totally different order because you're talking about having a conversation with somebody, finding the right bottle for them to going to trying to cater a party and tailoring it to a group of people, people that you don't know, people you haven't talked to. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so we do specialized wine dinners, wine region focused tastings. Those are really few and far between. Most of what we're doing are weddings, large events, and nonprofit 
charity dinners or galas of some type. And we have the same conversation with these event organizers that we do with our customers. We try to take all the stress off quickly. The first thing I'll tell a bride or a groom or anyone organizing a wedding is, what you're pouring is not as important as you think it is. You don't need to have really expensive wine. I work in wine. I can't tell you what wines I've had at weddings. I have no idea because it doesn't really matter. And so I constantly try to take the pressure off of, if you think you need to spend X amount of per bottle, you probably don't. Or if you really want to start with something super nice, do it. Have a case of really great champagne for a toast. And then switch to Prosecco Superiore. That's a third of the cost because no one's going to remember. So I have so much fun with events because I see the pressure being so much higher than the everyday consumer and I get to watch me just like burst that bubble and I see the relief. That's really what we try to do. And whether it's making a bride's life easier or somebody running a nonprofit who has all these pieces they're trying to juggle, just telling them, hey, it's not that bad. We'll make it easy. All you need are a couple simple things and we'll take care of the rest. I think that part is really, really fun. And it's totally true. I really don't remember what I've had for weddings in regards to wine. And I don't think most people do. If you're planning a wedding and you're listening to this, spend less than you need to. Or call me. I'll, I'll tell you what to do. So as we kind of wind down our conversation, this is a question that I ask a lot of small business owners, which is, do we do enough as a city to support and encourage people, especially women, to start and grow their own businesses here? And if not, what do you think should be done? That's also a really hard question. To be fair, I never looked into females opening a business in Pasadena. So I don't even know what resources are out there. So I will say that regardless of who you are, it's really hard to open a business of any kind. It's really hard to open an establishment selling alcohol in California. And that's just part of it, whether it was in Pasadena, Los Angeles, anywhere. And I was the person who went to City Hall. I'm completely self-funded. A lot of people opening a restaurant or a liquor store have people in charge of permits for them, lawyers that are designating city lines. I just showed up to City Hall on a regular basis and I asked a lot of questions. I will say I found the people I spoke with at the city to be really helpful in the health department, in zoning. At ABC, I actually found all the people I talked to to be helpful. One thing I would recommend to anyone trying to start a business like this or with some of those regulating forces is it's not their job to get creative for you. It's your job to get creative for yourself. So I remember having a list of requirements and some of those felt impossible. So I would say to the health department or to ABC, hey, I don't have a Ferrari, but what if I had a Mercedes Benz? What if, you know, I would kind of say, I know we've got this sky high thing, but what, you know, what are other options? And I found the city to be really helpful as I was navigating some of these things. It didn't make it easier to jump through the hurdles. I think at the end of the day, it's gonna to be tough no matter who you are. And I think it's gonna take a lot of work, but I think if you remember that the people you're dealing with are people and that you have the same goal in mind, which I wanna be a safe place that's well zoned for this neighborhood, and I want to sell alcohol safely and responsibly, I think if you keep that in mind and you remind whoever you're talking to of that, I think it's a lot easier than thinking of it as fighting the system. Because I really did find the people in those departments to be very helpful. Well, that's good to hear. So you've said that working in wine has been your kind of your dream job. Now with the shop, when you think about the next five years, 10 years and beyond, 
What do you envision for the Pasadena Wine Shop? So funny to think of that question because a year ago I hadn't even signed a lease on this building. So <laughs> the thought of five years from now is amazing. I love thinking about that. I think no matter what happens over the next five years, I want to continue to be a place that's welcoming and unintimidating with a variety of wines in everyday's price points. I think that will always be super important to what we do and what will continue to set us apart from our competitors. What I am really looking forward to in the next year or so is building up a team of people. Right now it's mostly myself at the shop, which is so much fun, but that's only sustainable for so long if we wanna keep growing and reaching more. So I really look forward to finding that next generation of wine lovers who are wanting to be wine professionals. I've been so lucky to learn from so many wonderful people in this industry and I would love to start equipping other people with that knowledge and that hospitality to have some of those conversations like what you and I had today. That sounds really exciting to me. It's showing other people their own path in this industry through the shop and giving them fortitude and autonomy to create their own SOM world, whatever that looks like. This is off script, but I was thinking about the first time I bought wine and I was just 21 and I had a teacher that got engaged and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't drink in college, similar to you, or in high school, so I didn't really know anything about wines. And so I went to a grocery store and I remember just walking up to somebody that was buying wine for himself. I'm like, can you help me? And he was so nice to talk to. If you don't know and you don't have the experience, you need someone to guide you. And I think that that's what you get from your shop, which I think is really wonderful. You know, I have that with my mechanic, and this is an analogy I use for people. I have a mechanic that's awesome. And when the brakes are squealing on my car, he doesn't just tell me, hey, you need new brakes. He calls me over while my car's lifted. He says, here, come here, check this out. Do you see that? that disc where that is so that is what's causing that sound because when that piece hits that piece and he shows me and I don't know anything about cars it's a similar thing right where like everyone's kind of intimidated but a mechanic who can show you and like teach you something I want to be that for wine that's a great analogy so before I ask the last question I wanted to ask you what we're drinking currently and how this kind of came to be in your store. Yeah, so right now we are drinking a non-alcoholic sparkling apple juice from a cidery in Normandy. The producer is Eric Bordelais. He makes cider from pears and apples, and this is just sparkling juice. So this is his non-alcoholic version. I thought it'd be fun for us to just drink something tasty. I call it like the Rolls Royce of Martinelli's. I think it's like 15 bucks or something here at the shop. It's not a crazy price point. I specifically have it for pregnant moms or for high school graduations, just something special to taste if you are not someone who likes or can have alcohol. And I think it's just a little bit more complex than Martinelli's. I don't know what you would say. To me, it's like a little yeasty. It tastes like a little bready and it's sweet and easy drinking and it's under cork, just like a bottle of champagne. But yeah, it's just a high quality, yummy, bubbly apple juice. That's great. So thank you for opening it. Yeah, of course. Last question is the Pasadena Wine Shop is located in the Green Street Village area and you live in Bungalow Heaven. So if you could design a perfect day in Pasadena from breakfast to late night, what would you do? Where would you go? And what would you eat and drink? Such a great question. As you know, I'm a little limited physically, so I will not be dancing my face off all night long at some of the wonderful bars that we have. But a casual version, what a realistic day would look like for, for us is breakfast, grab coffee at Jones, 
especially if it's a morning where there's live music. They have live jazz some mornings, which we love. And then we'd go to Seed Bakery off Washington. That's in Bungalow Heaven. They have killer croissants. My dad says they are the best croissants that he's had outside of France. And I think that's totally true. I don't know what they put in those croissants, but they're really good. And then at lunch, we would either do like sandwiches at Roma, which if you're listening and you live in Pasadena and you have not had a sandwich from Roma, I don't want you to go there because so many people go there. So don't even, don't go because the line's already long. It's so good. It's so good. You want to hear something? I've never gone to Roma. Really? It's it's ridiculous being Italian. I've never gone to the store or to Roma. Really? I don't know why. You should go. You should I, go. I know we, I should. we get their frozen, they have frozen gnocchi that we pop in boiling water for a couple minutes and it is like pillows of just goodness. Sounds wonderful. They have a sandwich. It's just the sandwich that they make. And I, I won't go into too many details because I can just feel the line growing longer. But Roma has gotten a lot of much deserved press for their sandwiches. It's the best place for charcuterie in town. If we want some sliced meats, that's where I got charcuterie for our little grand opening for the shop when we opened. Love Roma. They're also near Bungalow Heaven area. We also are a big fan of true food restaurants on Colorado. I know they're a chain. They're not, you know, one and done, but they're dog friendly and the servers there are super nice. So that would be another lunch option for us. The tuna tower with like a little spicy aioli is so good. And then we have this tradition we do, especially in the summer where we do the shop closes at seven and we do like a sunset happy hour is what my boyfriend and I call it. So we like to close up here and then get to the nearest parking garage or high place where we can look out. And one of our new favorite things to do is go to Agnes, go to the cheese counter, get a few pieces of cheese, which the minimum is a quarter pound, which is like way more than anyone needs, but we get like three or four different cheeses. And they have this sourdough bread that they do by the loaf or half loaf. And I don't know, again, I don't know what they put in it, but it's so, so good. So we go to the cheese counter and we just get stuff for a little picnic. And then we basically overdose on cheese which I asked my British friend Chloe who works at the shop she's a som as well it's like Chloe is there like I don't know have you ever had that happen she's like oh yeah we have a word for that in England it's called cheesy dreams I'm like oh we totally had cheesy dreams after that so we've been hitting the cheese from Agnes super hard cornerstone cow's cheese from Vermont we're having like constant dreams about so that's what we would do for like a little happy hour pre-dinner pre-game and then dinner at U Street Pizza I think U Street Pizza the pizza place that Union opened up is just so stupid good we love 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 their pizza and then 21 choices frozen yogurt at the end of the night. I actually am newer to the 21 Choices game. I went for the first time a few months ago. And similarly to how you'll feel once you go to Roma, I went and I'm like, how have I never been here before? And I will brave that line no matter how long it is. It is so good. I have some in the freezer because I only let myself eat half of it. So I still have some leftovers from a couple days ago. So yeah, that's my like casual eating through Pasadena for a day. Thank you very much for being such a great part of Pasadena, for opening such a wonderful shop here on Green Street, and for sharing your love of wine with everyone, and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, thanks, James, for having me. It was so much fun. Come back anytime. My many thanks to Nicole for coming on the show. When I was saying goodbye and Nicole was unlocking the doors, there was a repeat customer waiting. Having enjoyed the experience in the wine so much, she came back for another recommendation. As I left, they were already on a first-name basis and seemed to be on their way to becoming fast friends. And I think this is what makes passing a wine shop so special. 
Anyone can sell you a bottle of wine, but it's that connection Nicole has with her customers that makes the Pasadena Wine Shop so delicious. For more information and to support the Pasadena Wine Shop, please visit PasadenaWineShop.com. There you can buy a bottle or five, and they even offer free local delivery to Pasadena, Altadena, South Pasadena, and San Marino. The Pasadena Wine Shop is located at 1055 East Green Street, and they're open from Tuesday to Sunday. Nicole mentioned several important people that have helped and inspired her during her life. One of these people was her friend Pam, who she described as one of her second moms. Last week, Pam passed away, and so in loving memory, we'd like to dedicate this episode to her. There are so many people that keep the show going. First, I wanted to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my family for all your love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I'd love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, raise your glass high, and as always, see you around town. To me, it's, <clears throat> to me, that's that's not really <clears throat> my, my, as my voice dies. <clears throat> so, as a non-white, as a non-white, it's, it's, nah. <laughs> I need an alcohol. You need some cider. It, there's no alcohol in that. It's completely. I know, different. but I'm not saying I need. Maybe I need some. Well, yeah, maybe exactly. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm going. Okay. It's probably not a good idea to start drinking at one o'clock.